Zechariah 6, 1 through 15. Again, I lift my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven and presenting themselves before the Lord and all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go towards the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go towards the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles, Hildiah, Tobiah, Jedidiah, who have arrived from Babylon and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and said to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder of Helm, Tobiah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Thanks, Grace. She looked at me like, what, what? What did you just make me read? Thank you. I know those, some of those names are hard to pronounce. No, no one knows how to pronounce them, though, so you, you crushed it. Um, um, okay, so we are uh, looking at the book of Zechariah. That's what we've kind of been up to this summer. And the first six chapters of this book, he has these eight dreamlike visions. And just like your dreams, they're trippy and weird and confusing and hard to understand. And this morning, we're looking at the last one, the last of the, of the eight, the eight, eight of eight. And it is... Um, it's the crescendo of the whole thing. It's the, it's the firework kind of grand finale. And it is this beautiful picture, this image of the world being at rest and how that comes about, how the rest comes about. All the violence, all of the chaos stabilized over. So I really want to look at this idea from, uh, of rest really under uh, three headings. I want to look at the promise of rest, and then the puzzle of rest, and then the person of rest. And, and I did not intend for that outline to all start with the same letters, but sometimes, you know, the, the, the you know, stars align, and it just works out, and the chips fall where they do, and you get a perfectly alliterated outline from the Bible. So there you go. So let's look at um, the promise of rest to start it off. 
And uh, you, you see this in, in uh, verses one through eight. In, in verse one, the vision begins with these four chariots kind of charging out. And, and chariots were the um, standard military equipment of the day for conquering. You got, in a, you got in a chariot when you wanted to go con- you know, do a conquest and conquer somebody. And you see in verse uh, three that they are being pulled by strong horses. So you have this, these are like tanks. This is like a, this is a picture of a beefed up military power set out to conquer. And you see in verse um, one that they are being dispatched from two bronze mountains, which is a strange thing. And so there's all this debate over what does that mean? What do these mountains mean? And there's, you know, some scholars say it's a nod to the to the temple. It had these two giant bronze pillars and the chariots are going out from that. Whatever it means, it's clear that these, this military is going out from the Lord's presence, that he's dispatching this military. And you can see where they're going in verse 6. Some are going to the north, some are going to the south. And the reason why that's significant is because in the mind of an of a, you know, ancient Israelite, that's where all the problems of the world came from. The northern country was where Babylon and Assyria came from, and the south was Egypt. And so these represent the places in the world that are the most hostile to God, the most brutal, the most uh, destructive. And here goes God's kingdom into those dark parts of the world and setting up shop even there. And the last kind of detail that that I want to draw your attention to is in verse 8. It's this picture of mission accomplished. It says, uh, then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. It's this kind of uh, echo of the creation story in Genesis. When God finishes his work, he rests. It's this picture of completion, that it's, it's over, it's stable now, that the world which has been marked by violence and chaos and brutality, it's, it's over, it, there's rest. God's spirit is at rest because the world is finally at rest. That's the picture. It kind of reminds me of uh, the Lion King. You know when um, evil Scar gets rid of Mufasa and, and sets up shop as, as, the, as the king. The, the, the land got corrupted. It got distorted. It became this wasteland. All the plants died. All the bushes kind of dried up, and it was just this barren wasteland of skeletons and hyenas, and it was, it was awful. But then when Simba takes, you know, he's the rightful heir to the throne. When he comes back into power and gets rid of Scar, what happens to the land? The land starts to come alive again. The plants come back. There's, it's vibrant. There's vitality. There's life. There's, there's, there's rest. That's the picture. And you think about in Zechariah's day what this would have meant, because you might remember the context. Zechariah was given this vision in the middle of a crisis, These foreign powers had come in and decimated their society, and so it was this barren wasteland of death. And and to hear this vision of there is a king who is strong and who will defend you and will hold people accountable, and the world, which is so marked by chaos and violence, it it will be at rest one day, someday. Now, this, this vision comes up again in a couple of chapters, so I'm not really going to camp on it 
a lot here because it, it, you get a lot more details of what this means later. But, but here's what I at least want to show you as we kind of drive by this thing. Um, that the hope that the Bible extends to you and to me is of the world being made right, of this world being set to rest. Now, when I was younger and growing up, kind of being in and around the church, my understanding of what Christian salvation was, was that God saved you out of this world. This world is a mess. It's going to hell in a handbasket. And salvation is being extracted from the world and being whisked away to, uh, to heaven. But even in this vision, for as cryptic and as bizarro as it is, you at least see that that's not the full story. The, the full story, the ultimate hope, is this world being set to rest. There's a um, theologian, N.T. Wright, who says, uh, quote, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. And I love that because he's acknowledging, yes, heaven's this real thing, but the, the end is heaven coming down to this world, making this world right, righting all the wrongs of this world, this world being set to rest, God dwelling here in this place being restored. Now, we're going to talk about that more, like I said, in a couple of weeks, so I'll just leave it for that. That's the promise of rest. It's coming. But as you read through the rest of this passage, it starts to get really confusing. And there's this puzzle that starts to develop, not just in this passage, but it kind of pops up all throughout the um, Hebrew scriptures. And, and he, so let's look at that for just a second, the puzzle of this, because the, the, this whole passage is about how definitive and set in stone that this reality is. God is going to come. God is going to conquer his enemies. The world is going to be made right. It, it, this, is, this is reflected with all this shall language that you see throughout this. If you, in fact, look at verse 12. I'll just show you how this is kind of sprinkled all throughout. Verse 12, it says, the branch, which we'll, just, we'll talk about here in a minute. Hit pause on that. The branch shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple. Verse 13, he shall build the temple. He shall bear royal honor. He shall sit and rule on his throne. There shall be a priest on his throne. The council of peace shall be between them both. Verse 14, the crown shall be in the temple. Verse 15, those who are far off shall come and help build the temple. You shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. You know when you say a word over and over and it kind of starts to lose its meaning? Shall shall. Anyway, that's, um, that, that's, that's the idea, though. You see this shall. It will happen. This will be set in stone. It's definitive. Shall, 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 shall. Then you get to the very last verse, and it throws the whole thing out of whack. Because <laughs> look at verse 15. It says, in this shall come to pass if, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And you're like, wait, um, which one is it? Is God going to do this regardless? Or is this all on us? Is this dependent on us? Are the blessings of God unconditional or are they conditional? That's kind of this puzzle that you see forming, not just here, but in fact, you see this, like I said, it's kind of sprinkled throughout the entire Hebrew scriptures. In fact, let me just give you one more example. If you go to um, Deuteronomy chapter 4, I'll read you verse 25. It says this, 
If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. Now that's intense, but it's at least clear. He says, if you, if you disobey me, if you screw up, you will be utterly destroyed. So it sounds, oh, goodness, okay, there's a lot of pressure. I better do, I got to get in line. If I, if I step out of line, I will be utterly destroyed. Five verses later, here's what it says. Same paragraph. This is Deuteronomy 4, 31. The Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And you're like, well, which one is it? Is it unconditional or is it conditional? Is God ultimately, basically, a God of love or is he a God of law? Now, when you start to think about this, you see this creates a pretty massive theological puzzle. Because if God looks at something that is wrong in the world, call it what you want, sin, evil, crime, if God looks at that and just forgives it, if he says, hey, I realize people screw up, people mess up, NBD, water under the bridge, he's loving, but he's not just. He's unjust. In fact, someone like that who doesn't hold people accountable, that's a problem. Because now you have a God that looks at someone who commits gun violence or sexual violence, or racial violence, and says, hey, you get a free pass. But if every time God looks at sin, evil, crime, and just annihilates people on the spot, now you have a God that's unloving. Now you have a God that's unmerciful, a God that's just this trigger-happy tyrant who says, if you step out of line, I will, I will, I will annihilate you. And so you have this, you have this puzzle and maybe you're thinking about this. Okay, this is um, so esoteric. This is just some. This is a you know abstract theological debate that is totally disconnected from real life. This is like you know back in the Middle Ages when theologians would um, debate over how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. You're like, that's I guess an interesting question, but um, uh, totally irrelevant. So if you're thinking, okay, this is a totally irrelevant brain teaser, who cares? Uh, I want to argue that I think you're wrong. I think how you answer this question has the impact to shape your entire life. In fact, I heard um, another pastor, uh, Tim Keller, author, theologian, he, he was talking about the same sort of puzzle a number of years ago, and he said how you answer this question really impacts everything about your life. Because think about this. Let's say that you answered the question this way. Let's say that you think God's blessings are fundamentally unconditional. His love is bigger than his law, that his uh, promises are primary and his commandments are secondary. So what you think is, you know, obedience to God, it's a good idea. It's a nice thing. But you know what? At the end of the day, God's still going to accept you just the way you are. And so it's, you know, it's kind of optional. Now, if that's you, um, that's, that's um, someone who tends to be on the left of things. 
And this is someone who's more progressive. This is what Keller would call relativism. And, and Keller would say that relativists are people who have their consciences screwed on too loose. He says, these are people that have been told their whole lives that everything is fine, that they're wonderful just the way they are. You decide what is right and wrong for you. Nobody should impose their values on you. And so as a result, these people tend to be self-indulgent. They tend to be people who put themselves first, who are always cutting corners, who kind of pick and choose their morals, who aren't loyal, who don't keep their commitments. They jump from thing to thing, jump from relationship to relationship. They're selfish consumeristic, and you think, okay, someone who's living their life like that, that's not restful. That's exhausting. It's exhausting to just kind of do whatever you want without, you know, any regard. But if you're on the other end of that debate and you say, no, 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 God's blessings are conditional, that his law is what is bigger than his love, and that his... Um, his commandments are primary, and his promises are secondary. And so maybe you think, whoa, 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 God, God is not going to bless anybody just willy-nilly. He has standards. He is holy. He did give us the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. And so if this is you, you're on the, you tend to be on the right of things. These are people who are conservative. These are, this is legalism. And Keller says legalists are people who have their consciences screwed on too tight. These are people who don't like themselves, who are hard on themselves, and they're hard on everybody else around them, uh, constantly beating themselves up, feel like they're trying hard, but they can't live up to expectations, constantly feel like they're a failure, constantly feel guilty and that they aren't enough. It's miserable. I mean, that's not restful either. It's exhausting. But, but here's the point. Most people tend to fall into one of those two camps. You're either a relativist or a legalist, either liberal or a conservative. And the question is, okay, well, which one? Which one's the correct one? Are God's blessings conditional or unconditional? Is, is, is his law or is it his love that is really kind of the main thing here? That's the puzzle. And to answer the puzzle, we gotta look at this last thing. We gotta look at the person of rest. So let's look, at this, let's look at the last thing. And you see that in, in verse 9, there's this pivot. The, the, the visions are over, and now God tells Zechariah, I want you to go do something. And what he tells Zechariah to do is pretty strange. He says, I want you to go and get some silver and gold and fashion it into a crown, and I want you to go put it on the head of this guy named Joshua, who was the high priest at the time. And when you do that, verse 12, here's what I want you to say as you're putting the crown on his head. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. Now, can you imagine um, how strange that would have been? Uh, Joshua's just doing his thing, hanging out, playing Wordle or whatever they did back then, and um, some dude comes up and puts a crown on his head and says, hey, everybody, look, the branch. This guy's name is the branch. You're like, what is happening right now? This is so weird. Now, it's lost on us why this would be weird. But actually, for, for um, someone in, in Zechariah's day, they would have known what was going on because that word, the branch, was kind of code language. It was, it was synonymous with the Messiah to come. 
In fact, uh, I included a little verse in your bulletin. This, this phrase pops up again throughout the Bible, but I'll read you. Uh, Jeremiah 23, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So in that day and age, there was this expectation that there was going to be this descendant of David who was going to come back as the rightful king and set up shop. And the reason why it's called a branch is you think about like a family tree, David's family tree. It was like, okay, here's this sprout, this branch that's going to come out. It's basically just a, a, um, a way to say descendant. There's a long, you know, great, 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 great grandson of David who's going to come and he's going to make things right. And so what's happening in this moment when he's putting the crown on him and saying, hey, everybody, the branch, it's not, he's, he's not coronating Joshua in that moment. This is a symbolic, theatrical way to say there is one who is going to come from the family of David, and he will be both a priest and a king. And that would have been the bombshell. That would have been the, thin, been the thing that was so unheard of because priests and kings were totally separate deals. You know, priests were clergy. They were in the temple. They did the sacrifices. Kings, you know, did the edicts and the laws, and they organized the empire. These were totally separate deals. They stayed in their own lanes. And here you have this picture where you have a priest wearing a crown, you have a priest and a king, these two things merging together. And this is such a um, radical idea. There's actually some uh, Old Testament scholars that think that this is actually an error, that think that whoever was writing the book of Zechariah made a mistake and like wrote down the wrong word because priests and kings are not the same thing. But that's missing the whole point. The point is that the one to come is going to be both these two realities merging together. It's kind of like, um, reminds me of the, the movie Fight Club. You remember Fight Club, where throughout the whole story, you have Ed Norton's character and you have Brad Pitt's character, and these are two separate things, or even fighting at one point, and then you realize in the end, they're actually the same dude. Sorry if I just spoiled a movie that came out in 1999, so I feel a little, <laughs> little okay. But um, it's kind of like this whole story, the whole biblical story, God saying, okay, you think priests and you think kings are separate deals. Okay, great. In the end, it's going to be the same person. In the end, they're going to merge together into one person. And, of course, the great story is that centuries later, the branch sprouted up. The great son of David did come in the person of Jesus. And he is this kind of priest and king combo. I mean, think about it. What, what does a king represent? A king represents law. That when you're a part of a kingdom, you can't just do whatever you want. You are under the reign of a king. And so early on in Jesus' ministry, it's fascinating. He, he climbs up on top of a mountain, just like Moses went on top of a mountain and gave the law, gave the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes on top of a mountain and gives a law. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And early on in the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus says. He says, Matthew 5, 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he's saying. I am a king, and my kingdom is going to be organized as such where I expect you to obey even the least of the commandments, even the things that you think are the most irrelevant, most pointless. All of it matters. King, law. And yet, at the same time, what does a priest represent? A priest represents love. I mean, people went to priests when they broke the law. And a priest was the one who offered the sacrifices on their behalf so that they would be forgiven. And what does Jesus do at the end of his life? He functions as a priest, and he offers up a sacrifice not for his disobedience, but for my disobedience and for your disobedience. He is this king that perfectly fulfills all of God's laws and yet in the end gets treated as a lawbreaker. And on the cross, he gets crushed and he gets punished in the place of his people. Don't you see, Jesus is where all the puzzles find their resolution. Are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? Yes. Jesus fulfills the conditions for you so that when you believe in him, God can commit to you unconditionally. Which is bigger, law or love? Yes. God's law matters so much to him that someone has to be held accountable. Someone has to be punished for breaking it. And yet his love so matters to him that he would rather himself be punished in your place so that you wouldn't have to. Both, it all comes together. He is the priest and he is the king. And here's, here's why this matters. Because only when your savior is both a king and a priest can you finally have rest. Because all that anxiety of... I don't know if I'm doing enough. I don't know if I am enough. I need to try harder. I need to do more. All of that gets melted away because you have a priest that has perfectly atoned for all of your sins. You have a priest that has perfectly paid for all of it. All the anxiety is over. And now, from that place of rest, fullness, joy, we are liberated by grace to go participate in his kingdom. Because his commands are not burdensome. They were, they were what we were designed to do and to be. And so that rest that we experience in Jesus starts to flow out into every area of our life, how we relate to our family or our jobs or our neighborhood or the environment or our city or whatever. The rest that we experience goes out into the world. And in fact, that great vision of the world being made right, the world finally at rest, it happens through the instruments of his people. And so don't you see, there's, there's, by Jesus being a priest and a king, there's something for everybody. If you are somebody who, who has your uh, conscience screwed on too loose, you need to remember that Jesus is your king, that he's your king, and his commandments are not optional. But if you're someone who has your conscience screwed on too tight, you need to remember that Jesus is your priest and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so uh, the invitation for you this morning is to rest in the priest king of Jesus and then to give that rest away to others.
for the life of the world and for the sake of the world. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Oh, Father, thank you um, that we have a Savior that knows us intimately like a priest and defends us valiantly like a king. We have a Savior that is so tender and so gentle with us like a priest and yet is not afraid to correct us, not afraid to confront us, challenge us like a king. Father, I pray that you would give us this uh, duality of humility and boldness this duality of being utterly known and being utterly loved and um, governed in love. And I, and I pray that that would, that would liberate us to walk in the ways of your law, the law of love, the law of freedom. Help us to be people that, that are so transformed by this grace, so transformed by, by this love that we would be not, not stagnant. We would not be um, just mere, mere um, receivers but people who drink in your grace and then give it away generously. Only you can transform us by your goodness like this. So please do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name.